So let's get started. Let's uh, open with prayer before we dig in. Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and learn from your word, uh, opportunity to worship you, the opportunity to fellowship together, to sing songs of praise, glorifying you, and uh, for the opportunity to come together and give back to you what you've given to us. Let's pray that you would open our minds, hearts to what you have for us this morning in your word regarding uh, the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would keep me from error and um, just help us to grow in our knowledge of you, grow in our knowledge of who you are, what you're like, and what you require of us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, when introducing this series on the Holy Spirit, I said something like, in order to worship God rightly, we must know God rightly. And I would double down on that statement. Uh, we can't love and worship God as He would have us love and worship Him if we don't know Him. Uh, we could easily fall into error, even fall into heresy, if we don't understand fully, at least as fully as possible, who God is and what He's like. And this has been said before, but if we only focus um, on one attribute of God to the exclusion of His other attributes, we'll end up worshiping a false God. We'll actually end up worshiping an idol that we have created. Just an example of that is if we were to focus uh, exclusively on God's love to the exclusion of his justice and wrath, just because we're uncomfortable with justice and wrath, then we're not worshiping God as he's been revealed in Scripture, as he's revealed himself to us. I've also heard statements like this. You may have heard this as well. Um, I don't want to know all about, or I don't want to study all that doctrine and theology, I just want to love Jesus. Well, that, quite frankly, is a ridiculous statement, because knowing doctrine and theology is simply knowing what Scripture reveals about Jesus, what Scripture reveals about God, about Himself, what it reveals about us, about sin, about the world. Point is, you cannot love Jesus if you don't know who he is. And that's true of human relationship as well. You can't love somebody unless you know them. I mean, I hear people say things like, oh, I love Taylor Swift. Oh, I love so-and-so. Well, no, you don't. You don't even know them. So you can't love them. You might like their music, but you don't love the person. You can't love someone unless you know them. And you can't love them deeply and fully unless you know them deeply and fully. And that's true of our relationship with God. You can't love and worship God without knowing who He is and what He's like, and that includes knowing the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He's like and what He does. Because the Holy Spirit is God. Just as much as God the Father is God, and Jesus, God the Son, is God. So also the Holy Spirit is God. And that's actually one of the topics that we'll address in this series. In fact, it's next week's topic, the deity of the Holy Spirit and his 
place in and relationship within the, the Trinity. Knowledge of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital to our knowledge of God because if we don't know Him, if we don't know the Holy Spirit as He's revealed in Scripture, then we do not have an accurate or complete understanding of who God is. Therefore, our worship will be deficient and prone to error. Our knowledge of the work of the Holy Spirit is also important to our growth in Christ's likeness and living lives in submission to the Lordship of Christ because the Holy Spirit is vitally and actively and intimately involved in our salvation and our ongoing sanctification. Now, I mentioned last week that the Holy Spirit is the least understood and the most neglected or misrepresented member of the Trinity. And I'll get into some of those reasons um, a little bit later. But first, I want to give you a few more reasons why it's important to know and understand the Holy Spirit, aside from our worship. Now, part of the reason for the lack of understanding is that Scripture does speak less about Him than it does about the Father or about Jesus. However, once we get into the New Testament, much is revealed about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the New Testament is where His person and work really comes into prominence, particularly in the lives of believers and in the church. So, that reason alone, because he is revealed quite uh, dramatically in the New Testament, it's important that we thoroughly acquaint ourselves with what has been revealed about him. We need to know what the Word says about him. Acts 2, 17 through 18, Peter quotes the prophet Joel saying, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, we're in the last days now. Time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, those are the last days. Those are the days that we are living in right now. And it says that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So the Holy Spirit plays an extremely significant role in the last days, in these times that we are living in. So it's important that we know what that's going to look like or what that does look like, and we shouldn't let any negative experience that we may have had in the past with other churches or other people who may have misrepresented the Holy Spirit and His work, we shouldn't let that keep us from digging into Scripture and what it reveals about him. It's also important to understand the Holy Spirit and his work in our salvation, our assurance of salvation. He plays a key role in that, you will see, and his part in perseverance of the saints to the end of their lives. It's also important to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit in regards to our sanctification. That's already been mentioned. Our growth to maturity in Christ's likeness is dependent upon him. The fact is that we can't grow to maturity in Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand the Holy Spirit in order to understand the Scriptures because apart from His work in believers, uh, we would not understand God's Word. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit 
We also need to understand his work in our prayers. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. It's also understand, uh, important to understand the Holy Spirit and his work in order to understand and use our spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church. And every believer has been given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit. So a lot of reasons why we need to have a correct understanding, a thorough understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I will emphasize again, though, what I believe is the most important reason, and that is that we cannot know, love, and worship God rightly if we do not know the Holy Spirit. Okay. I said earlier that we shouldn't let negative experiences with those who have misrepresented the Holy Spirit or where there may have been abuses of his person and work, which you can see on television just about every day on some of those religious uh, channels. We shouldn't let that keep us from pursuing our knowledge and our understanding of the Holy Spirit. I think one of those misrepresentations, one that's been around for a long, long time, uh, is actually found in older translations of the Bible specifically the King James. Um, nothing against the King James, but in the King James, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Ghost. And ghost calls up all kinds of negative or false notions from Casper, the friendly ghost, to these terrifying disembodied spirits that haunt homes and live under the beds and in the closets of little children along with other terrifying creatures and monsters. Well, the Holy Spirit is not a ghost. He's not a friendly ghost like Casper, and he's not a scary ghost haunting that mansion down at Disneyland. Because ghosts aren't real. Actually, demons may pose as ghosts, but that's a whole separate topic in theology, and we're not going to talk about that today. So just purge that idea of ghost from your thinking about the Holy Spirit. Now, we should also not let disagreements about the person and work of the Holy Spirit keep us from studying what's revealed in Scripture about Him. If anything, those disagreements should motivate us to a more thorough and deeper study of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the reasons we're doing this for the next 10 weeks. And there is certainly considerable disagreement within Christianity about the Holy Spirit. Those disagreements exist primarily between Pentecostals, Charismatics, and non-Pentecostals, non-Charismatics. That would include us here at Crossway. Now, the development of Pentecostal and Charismatic theology, uh, the development of that theology that has contributed to these disagreements really started back at the beginning of the 20th century in what has been called the first wave movement. There's also a second and third wave movement that we'll talk about. But some of the distinctives of that first wave Pentecostal charismatic theology were that the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
is actually a second blessing or a second manifestation of the Holy Spirit that takes place at some point in time after salvation, not in conjunction with salvation. Could be immediate, it could take place in a couple of days, could take place in a couple of months or even a couple of years, but it happens at some point subsequent to salvation. And the evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit is that the believer will speak in tongues. He will speak in a foreign or unknown language that the believer has never studied and has no prior knowledge of. So according to this theology, if you have not spoken in tongues, you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. Some uh, charismatic denominations even assert that if you have not uh, been baptized in the Holy Spirit, if you have not spoken in tongues, that you are in fact not born again. Now, another distinctive feature of first wave um, charismatic theology is that the miraculous spiritual gifts or sign gifts are all still given by the Holy Spirit today. So all the gifts that we see in the New Testament apostolic era are, are still given. They're still in operation in the church today. So in addition to speaking in tongues, we would see uh, the gift of interpretation, of prophecy, of healing, of working miracles, etc. Those are all still given by the Holy Spirit, and they should be in operation today, according to charismatic theology. Now, this all got started back in 1906, lasted up through about 1915, and started in Los Angeles. That alone makes it suspect. And this is what was called the Azusa Street Revival. This was the beginning of modern-day uh, Pentecostalism in their theology, the Holy Spirit. This uh, also resulted in the creation of some new denominations, the Apostolic Faith, Oneness, Pentecostals, and this is where the Assemblies of God got started. So that's the first wave. Then, second wave is what's also called the Charismatic Movement, which began in the 60s. Uh, second wave wasn't so much the starting of new denominations that held to this charismatic theology, uh, but Pentecostal or charismatic theology began to infiltrate mainline denominations. Uh, you would see um, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Orthodox, Roman Catholics. Yes, even Baptists were adopting some of the points of this theology particularly the uh, theology of baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing accompanied by speaking in tongues and miraculous gifts. And that started in the 60s, continued for a couple of decades, and actually, uh, to a degree, Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Churches were products of this second wave movement. But again, the main impact was on mainline uh, denominations, influencing mainline denominations. Now, the opposing view or the opposing theology to Pentecostal or charismatic theology is the more traditional, the more widely held position, uh, the position that's been held throughout church history for the most part. This position holds that when a person comes to saving faith, at the moment of conversion, 
from unbelief to faith in Christ, at that time, simultaneous with conversion, Jesus Christ baptizes the believer with the Holy Spirit into the church. He baptizes the believer with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And that's a simultaneous work of God at the moment of conversion. It doesn't take place moments or days or weeks or years later. And it's not accompanied by speaking in tongues. So at the same moment that God regenerates, that he redeems, that he justifies, adopts, and unites us with Christ, Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit into the body of believers, his church. Now, this position would also argue that speaking in tongues, along with all of the other miraculous uh, sign gifts, prophecy, healing, miracles, all of those are no longer given by the Holy Spirit today, that they were actually uniquely for the early church, that they were for the apostolic period. They confirmed the message of the gospel, confirmed the authority of the apostles as sent by God and as his messengers of the gospel. And with the death of the last apostle, those miraculous gifts also ceased being given by the Holy Spirit. So the position would also argue that any apparent manifestation of these miraculous gifts today would be considered either deliberately false or the result of peer pressure, indoctrination, mass hysteria, or possibly even demonic activity, but not the work of God. Then, third wave started in the 1980s, included guys like John Wimber and Wayne Grudem, Wayne's a good guy, but he's mistaken about some things. This uh, third wave position borrows from, from both camps of theology. So from Pentecostal th theology, they, they borrow some. From traditional theology, they borrow some. And the first main point that they take from the traditional position is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at the moment of saving, saving faith and conversion. It doesn't happen at some point in time later. It's simultaneous with conversion. And they would hold that speaking in tongues is not a necessary manifestation or result of baptism of the Holy Spirit. It could, could happen, but it's not necessary. And that's really the big thing to take away from the traditional non-charismatic position. But the third wave position would say that all of the miraculous sign gifts including tongues, interpretation, prophecy, miracles, healing, all of that are still given by the Holy Spirit and are all still in operation in the church. So those are the basic points uh, represented by charismatic theology and non-charismatic theology. Uh, that is what has led to many of the disagreements within the church, it's, and it's also led to an overly negative reaction, maybe even a, a dramatic reaction, particularly among the more conservative evangelical churches, including Baptists. We overreact to the abuses and the misrepresentations of the Holy Spirit and His work uh, that are found in some of these more extreme charismatic circles. So in reaction or an overreaction to those abuses and misrepresentations, the more conservative churches neglect or avoid 
the study of the Holy Spirit. Don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit for fear that you'll go charismatic or something. So fortunately, that has been changing uh, in more recent years. But our negative uh, reaction, disagreement with what we believe is an unbiblical view should not keep us from studying and knowing the Holy Spirit. Say it again. Knowledge and understanding of the Holy Spirit is vital to our worship of God and to our living lives under the Lordship of Christ. So, that was the introduction. Now, with that, we're going to actually get into the study of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look uh, at a lot of passages in Scripture over the next several weeks. So either be fast in your page turning, or uh, I have included most of the references in the study guide, so you can refer to those later. And we're going to revisit the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in coming weeks. So a lot more is going to be said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, his work in the life of Christ in the Old Testament. All of those issues will be covered. But the first thing that we want to consider this morning and that Scripture um, abundantly attests to is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person in the same way that God the Father is a person, and he's a person in the same way that Jesus is a person. But the personhood of the Holy Spirit has been one of those points of disagreements, disagreement um, throughout church history. Uh, even today, there's much misunderstanding about the truth that he is a person. You will certainly find uh, false teaching in many of the pseudo-Christian cults. So going all the way back to the 4th century, Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Arius, who uh, many of you may have heard of, was a priest. He had a significant following. He's at the Council of Nicaea, and he stirred things up when he denied the biblical teaching on the eternity of Jesus. Arius said that Jesus was actually created. He had not always been. And it's not as well known that he also denied the personhood and the eternity of the Holy Spirit. He also taught the Holy Spirit was created. And he argued that the Holy Spirit was only the exerted energy of God, not an actual person. Well, that was denied by the Nicene Council, and the biblical position of the personhood of the Holy Spirit was affirmed, along with the eternality of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Just a, a quick side glimpse, just kind of off topic, but I love this story. Um, church history, Council of Nicaea, there was another um, priest, another bishop actually from Turkey who was at the Council of Nicaea. You may have heard of him, St. Nicholas. So he's the guy that the whole myth of Santa Claus came from. Anyway, St. Nicholas, real guy. He was at the Council of Nicaea, and when he heard Arius speak and present his position, he became so angered and so incensed by Arius' false teaching that at one point he jumps up, walks over, storms over, and slaps Arius across the face. 
I kind of like to think that he actually punched Arius out. Now, some people say that that didn't actually happen, that it's just um, a myth. But whether it happened or not, Arius ultimately was sent into exile uh, for his teaching, and he died in exile. He may have been poisoned by his opponents. That St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, poisoning this guy because he disagreed with him. So, anyway, this heretical teaching of Arius did not go away. And in the 1500s, Socinius, who was an Italian theologian, taught basically the same thing, that the Holy Spirit was the eternally preceding energy of God. He was also branded a heretic. And this uh, teaching is what you'll find uh, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, is what they teach about the Holy Spirit and the Unitarians. So, now, how does Scripture reveal that the Holy Spirit is a person? This is in your notes. So, first of all, Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit has a mind, an intellect, he has emotion, and he has a will. Intellect, emotion, and will, those are all characteristics of personhood. Intim in inanimate or impersonal objects or mere forces, energy, or emanations don't possess intellect, emotion, and will. But the Holy Spirit does. His mind or intellect is evident in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. It says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit comprehends. He has thorough knowledge. He has thorough understanding of the thoughts of the mind of God. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So knowledge, comprehension, wisdom, understanding, counsel, those are all aspects of a personal mind and intellect that are not the characteristics of an impersonal or inanimate thing. Persons possess intellect. The Holy Spirit possesses intellect. So the Holy Spirit must be a person. The Holy Spirit also possesses emotion in that he can be grieved Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He can also be angered, Hebrews 10.29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's another title for the Holy Spirit. He also has joy, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can experience grief, can experience anger, can experience joy. Grief, anger, and joy are emotions of a person, not an energy or emanation. Holy Spirit 
is also seen to possess and exercise a will. Acts 16, 7. Paul, Silas, and Timothy want to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit won't allow it. Here's what it actually says. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And the Spirit of Jesus, again, is another term for the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Scripture makes a definitive statement as to the personal will of the Spirit. It says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's speaking of spiritual gifts. So the Spirit apportions, or he gives gifts as he wills. Persons possess intellect, emotion, and will. And from these scriptures alone, we see that the Holy Spirit possesses intellect, emotion, and a will. Therefore, from these proofs alone, we can affirm that the Holy Spirit is a person. But there's more evidence that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force, and that evidence is in the grammar of the New Testament. So, in Greek, the word for spirit is pneuma which is a neuter noun. In other words, it's not masculine, it's not feminine. So because it's a neuter noun, it would normally take a neuter pronoun, like it. But when referring to the Holy Spirit, Scripture usually uses the personal masculine pronouns rather than a neuter pronoun. So it uses he or him. Those are the preferred pronouns of the Holy Spirit. He and him. And here's some examples. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness, not it will bear witness. And then in John 16, 13 through 15, and that passage is included in your notes, but look at this. Because when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So nine times in those three verses, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a he, not an it. And this is the same way Jesus is referred to with personal masculine pronouns, he and him. So the only real um, reasonable explanation for this is that like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now I want to read to you a quote from Charles Hodge, who is a theologian and the principal of Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 1800s, back when Princeton Seminary was still Christian and biblical. Hodge said this about the Holy Spirit and the language of Scripture. He is introduced as a person so often, not merely in poetic or excited discourse, but in simple narrative and in didactic instructions. And his personality is sustained by so many collateral proofs 
that to explain the use of personal pronouns in relation to him on the principle of personification is to do violence to all the rules of interpretation, end quote. So, the language of Scripture affirms that the Holy Spirit is a person. The rules of Greek grammar affirm that the Holy Spirit is a person, not some ethereal, impersonal force. Now, his works also affirm that he is a person, since his works require the coordination of intellect and will and the outworking of his will. And like I said before, we're going to address a lot of these works in much greater detail in the coming weeks. So today's just a quick flyover. Anyway, in the passages we just looked at, in John 15, 26 and 16, 13 through 15, we see that the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. He hears, he speaks, he guides. The Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus and declares it. He glorifies Christ. Impersonal forces and energies don't hear, speak, guide, take, declare, or glorify. A person does that. And here's some additional passages. We already looked at this one regarding prayer, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He helps us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He groans for us. And Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Holy Spirit leads or guides believers. In John 16, 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. person does that. And then listen to these passages in Acts. Acts 8, 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot, this chariot. In Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here, the Holy Spirit speaks directly to individuals and he gives specific instructions. And then in John 14, 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is another helper, and he is a helper just like Jesus. Personal helper, not an impersonal force or energy. And we will look at that particular passage in great detail in the coming weeks. But it should be pretty uh, evident by now that only a person can speak, hear, guide, lead, pray, intercede, convict, give direct and personal instructions and commands, and be a helper like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a person. And one final evidence that the Holy Spirit is a person is that he's named in conjunction with the other persons of the Godhead. And the instructions that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in the benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
both of these passages place the Holy Spirit on an equal standing with the person of the Father and the person of the Son, which would imply that he is also a person. Plus, the fact that we are to baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. Persons are named, not forces. And we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, personal interaction. That takes place with persons, not forces or energy. So all of this evidence in Scripture, mind, intellect, emotion, will of the Holy Spirit, the language, the grammar that refers to him as a person using personal masculine pronouns rather than neuter pronouns, the many works of the Holy Spirit that are works done by a person, not impersonal forces, and the placing of the Holy Spirit alongside the other persons of the Trinity. All of these are proofs and make it abundantly clear the Holy Spirit is a person. Any questions? Yes. Mrs. Bassell. Sorry? I will address that in future sessions. You'll have to wait. Any other questions? Any question you ask, I'm going to address it in future sessions. So, <laughs> Reuben. <sighs> Quote it to me. I'll talk to you about that later. Okay? It's not really pertinent. Okay? Any other questions that I can dodge? No. All right. Yes? No. <laughs> no. That I can dodge. No. Me too. sound like a statement. Well, it is. I mean, the Trinity is one of those mysteries that is revealed in Scripture, but it does not explain how three persons can be one God. But it is very clear that three persons are one God, all equal in attributes and power and, and essence.
So that's actually one of the things I'm going to talk about in the future. But like one of the things that you'll see in almost any English translation, um, it sometimes will refer to the spirit of, of man, or the spirit that's in man. So if it's not capitalized, it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. If it's capitalized, it's a reference to the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. But differentiating between God, who is a spirit, God the Father, the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that in future sessions. Okay? All right, we're dismissed.